is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Generals gathered in their masses. So welcome to episode three of the Enter Sad Men podcast, the loudest podcast in the world. I'm Mark Norman. Joining me, as always, my compadres in rock, Mr. Richard Nabthine. Welcome. And Mr. Steve Davis. Hello to you both. Good evening. Hello, my friends. You all right? Always all right when we're recording the uh, Enter Sad Men podcast. So uh, we've done two. That's two more than we thought we might get around to doing, so that's not bad. And as in all of these things, we need to start with last week, which was a stonking episode. If you haven't listened to it, um, finish this one, then go back and listen to that one. That was a really interesting show last week, simply because we were all coming to everything quite new. So last week was uh, our favourite albums of all time. Richard chose Moving Pictures by Rush. Steve chose uh, Women and Children First, the third album by Van Halen. And I chose UFO's Strangers in the Night. And with the exception, I think, of UFO, I don't think any of us had listened to any of those albums all the way through for quite some time, if at all. I think that's a fair comment. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd listen to, uh, obviously, being a Van Halen head that I am, I do probably listen to Women and Children first, more recently than you listen to Strangers in the Night, certainly. But um, yeah, no, 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 it was, um, it was, it was, it was a, a welcome journey back into uh, into some great tunes from back in the day. Good stuff. So, spoiler alert: if you're on tenterhooks and haven't caught up with the uh, first two episodes yet, but you're desperate to to do that. Then close your ears, look away now, as they used to say on Grandstand, um, because uh, the after the first week, the one, two, three in the Hall of Fame was British Steel, Highway to Hell and Van Halen in that order. Last week, it all changed. It all changed last week. So let's just quickly run through the scores from last week's albums. We have a new a new king on the throne which is Rush's Moving Pictures with a, a, a quite impressive uh, 8.32 score out of 10. Then comes Women and Children First. So two of last week's albums now occupy the top two slots. Women and Children First scored 8.13. And Strangers in the Night, well, didn't quite get above British Steel, which had been week one's throne holder. Uh, that comes in at number four with a 7.9. So is anybody else really surprised that after doing six albums, 
Highway to Hell is fifth. I'd have expected it to be higher. What's fascinating about looking through our scores is, I mean, how, there are there are a number of tracks that we all, all three of us seem to agree on. You know, there's some really you know, big, high-scoring tracks, you know, so far. Things like Running With The Devil by you know, Van Halen, Highway To Hell, ACDC. And there are some where um, one or two of us absolutely like them, but one third of us thinks, hmm. So there seem to be quite a few tracks where we are we are all in agreement about how fantastic they are. There's very few weak, we've hardly seen a weak track, hardly heard a weak track, but there's one or two that will score less than others, which is why you've got, you know, and the idea that Van Halen, their debut album is sixth out of sixth. And we're looking for a Hall of Fame 500. And I know we're only two episodes into it, but you know, they're already in danger of missing out on the hallowed place in our Hall of Fame, which makes me think of two things. A, Jesus Christ, and B, <laughs> um, I think you're going to have to score, you're going to have to score deep into the sevens to get anywhere close to the 500. Because there's too many, we're going to see, we're going to do thousands of albums, so many good ones. I, I think the bar's already been set really high. It has, it, it definitely has. I think it's also going to be quite interesting the albums that if you look at, you go online, you, you look, search for the 100 best rock albums, 100 best heavy metal albums. The same albums appear on every list. Yeah. You look in the top 20 and I guarantee you that anybody who spent more than you know, uh, five years around this genre will be able to predict at least 10 or 15 of them, if not more. And the same albums you know, occupy the top five spots. And I think... Our top, however many, is going to look very different because I think albums that you know the critics think ought to be in the top ten are not going to be in the top ten, or the top twenty, or maybe even the top hundred. Yeah, and, and, and not only that, we haven't got a clue where those albums are yet because because there's so many refresher courses to be done later on down the line. You know, when we're listening to bands you, you've not given a, a minute's notice to for a while, like Flotsam and Jetsam. I always take Flotsam and Jetsam, don't I? They are a pet favourite, but I, I don't mean that. Anyone, you know what I mean? It could be anyone, and some, suddenly you're looking at, you're thinking, looking at an album and thinking, Jesus, I've forgotten how amazing that was. Next thing you know, it's an 8.5 and it's in your top 20 or something. So, yeah, who knows? Isn't that the beauty so, of it? Who knows? It is the beauty, it is the beauty of it. And, uh, you know, when we look at the first six, are we happy with that order? Not that we're going to change it, but is, is that fair? Is that a fair reflection of, of you know, two episodes so far? I don't know how to answer that because I think it. Uh, Steve's point is absolutely right. I think the way that we are, we've decided to score this, is an album has to be consistently excellent in a lot of the other top tens because an you know because an album was produced at a certain point in a group's career or has a very you know, defining track or three. It's that that pushes it up. We, we're, we're the, the way we're we're looking at this in, 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 in terms of the the scoring is it's got to be end to end absolute quality. Uh, what's what's fascinating about t- tonight, and at the end we'll come on to it when, when we talk about the the albums. Um, two of my favorite favorite tracks, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath tonight, are tracks that I've only really properly listened to this time round mm-hmm. um and and that's what's great about these these evenings and the preparation so now now that you mentioned it let's um 
let's just introduce tonight because we've done a couple of episodes where it's been about us and the albums that we've bought or the albums that we've loved. And I think quite rightly, tonight is about going back to where it all started, not for us, but for the genre. So tonight's episode is The Godfathers of Rock. Um, And as Richard's just said, we are going to be talking about Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and uh, the granddaddy of them all, uh, Led Zeppelin. So we're listening to Led Zeppelin 4, we're listening to Machine Head by Deep Purple, and we're going to kick off in a minute with Paranoid by Black Sabbath. Three huge names, uh, three albums released in consecutive years, 70, 71, 72. So, and interestingly, three albums made by bands whose members were broadly speaking the same age, all in their early 20s. The reason we chose these three albums, perhaps, perhaps worth explaining, is because throw back to three of the great, greatest pioneering rock songs of all time was, 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 was the premise, wasn't it? So Stairway to Heaven um, on Led Zeppelin IV, and then two, the, the two go-to songs that any aspiring young heavy metal guitarist has to learn the riffs for. Smoke on the Water yeah. and Paranoid. So we just thought, okay, we'll do the three albums that they're on. We could have picked any from from those bands, of course we could, um, but that's what's that's where we are. And I think we all generally we, we all know Led Zeppelin for. Of course, we know elements of Paranoid, and I knew more elements of Paranoid than I did Machine Head by Deep Purple, certainly. Although I vaguely remember it, it just comes flooding back. Um, but it'll be interesting to see. You know, we're we're a long way away from sorting out the marking, but it'll be interesting to see. Um, how the marking works on this i'm really curious i think we just need to get on with it now don't we as always we're going to talk about these in chronological order which means we start with paranoid opening album sleeve notes first of all how well if at all did any of us know this album before we did the research for this well it's worth explaining that while we're doing this we are listening to the album as it's played and so therefore we're kicking off with war pigs which is one of three or four tracks I knew. In fact, it, it, because we've seen Black Sabbath a few times, Mark, um, or Ozzy, you're aware of War Pigs, you're aware of Paranoid, you're aware of Iron Man, you're aware of Fairies Wear Boots. You never quite know where they fitted in to the Black Sabbath scheme of things, other than they were on the same album. But to me, I mean, everyone says that Black Sabbath were basically the first true heavy metal band and therefore this is therefore the second true heavy metal album after their first one but this was i honestly listening to it again for the first time in i guess 20 odd years it's um it was it was a voyage of discovery i've forgotten iron man really and it was it was interesting to hear it I've never been a massive fan of Ozzy Osbourne and his voice. And you talked last time round about Geddy Lee and queries over his voice. But seriously, I'd have Geddy over Ozzy any day of the week. And that's that's the bottom line. <laughs> Rich? We, we should. And I want you, you guys to get your thinking caps on. Let's come back to it a bit later in the podcast. Um, but given that we're saying that this is the uh, at least the Godfather's part one, we may have several sequels. There are more. Um, I, I want you and yeah, the, perhaps the listeners can have a think as well. That out of the members, so the members of these cla- of these lineups at, at when they're classics, which is on these three albums, you've got to put together the supergroup. 
who on vocals, who on bass, who on guitar, who on drums. Not much uh, competition for keyboards, obviously. But uh, yeah, yeah. So start having a think and let's have a talk about that later. Look, when Black Sabbath got together, I'm sure they, you know, they wanted to make a bit of money. I can't believe they thought they would ever become as colossal as uh, as they did. I mean, the story goes that Ozzy put some advert in some shop saying, Ozzy Wig needs gig, has own PA. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know uh, they, they they must have met and he was in the band and, and and then they just they they just started playing and working hard and and, and playing together. So I, I think uh, Ozzy's a bit of an accidental superhero. Is yeah, if we're starting with his his vocals, what, one interesting thing for me is he sings far better when he's actually singing a different melody over the structure of the rest, as opposed to singing along with Tony Iommi's guitar. It's better when you're singing a different tune. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like Morgan and Wise and Andre Previn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. Yes, exactly. Just not necessarily in the right order. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, so I was really looking forward to listening to Paranoid. And I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say, I love this album. After seven, eight, nine listens, whatever it is I've given it over the last week, it's bonkers. It's a bonkers album. I mean, there are bits on it where you think Tony Iommi is playing a different song to the rest of the band and Ozzy's singing a different song to the rest of the band. But there's some stuff on here that I just love. I just love it. But there's some, there's some stuff on here I don't like. What I found interesting, this album as a whole, was how you listen to it. Because I've, I've listened to it a number of times through headphones, but there was a, a point over the weekend where I put it on my hi-fi system and I turned it up. And it's an album that needs air. It, within, you know, in, in headphones, it's almost a little bit too intimate. It, it is best that you put this through a decent stereo and, and you turn it up, and it's then that it really comes into its own as a whole. It's very easy to be knockabout with it because of, the characters involved, isn't it? And um, we're looking at it through 2020 glasses, looking back at this this young Brummy band who who were so desperate to just you know make a lot of noise and 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 be big and solid and and, and every cliche they touch on every cliche throughout the album. Songs about the occult, obviously Vietnam, drugs, inevitably sort of the misery of their own upbringings but it's it's it's, it's almost the, the the extent of the amateurishness of it and that's i'm not using that in a rude way is the fact that the album cover was based on what the album was going to be called in the first place rather than what it was actually called they they couldn't even get around to changing that you know because it's the war pig isn't it on the front of the album cover and you just think this is proper schoolboy stuff bless them yeah, it's, it, it's so Heath Robinson. It's so yeah, Heath it's, Robinson. Yeah, yeah. And even the producer, was it Roger Bain, the producer? I mean, he, right. he divided opinions as well, doesn't he? Because many people who he's worked with, like Judas Priest mainly, had very little regard for him. But but um, IME said he was superb. He let the band do what they wanted to do and get on with it. And they were writing songs in Next to No Time. Because I think Black Sabbath was was came out that same year. So they wouldn't have done this. They'd have rattled through this. Presumably, yeah. but as you say, when you take off all the pantomime and and and, and all the knockabout stuff, 
there's some there's some proper music on there. I mean, there's some. I mean, we're listening to Paranoid now. This ain't the best riff on the album by a long, long shot. There's two or three much superior ones in my eyes. You know, if if this is track number five or six out of an album of seven or eight, then um, yeah, there's some good stuff on there. Planet Caravans just come on in my ear, and they've got all massive attack. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's a bonkers album. You go from paranoid into... I mean, I don't know where you are at the moment, but I'm in an opium den somewhere. No, I'm in the sixth form <laughs> common room and there's a joint being passed along and some nice, shiny, middle-class kid has just taken his first drawer and he said, oh, yeah, man, I, I, I'm i in a different place now. I'm just so chill. <laughs> and, and, and you feel like you want to be like some young ones, Aid Edmondson, just go slap him around the face and say, shut up. Because it just takes you back to a completely different place. You're thinking... This is nuts. This is nuts. Yeah. Although, to be fair, it's not great, is it? But it, but Tony Iommi saves the track. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I think this is a lovely song in all sorts of ways. I, I, I really, after the first listen to the whole album, I, I was, I was ready to go and eat my own head. But it With grows on you. Sorry. With a rat salad on the side. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it. I I, just, I didn't understand it. I, how did this? How did this album get to number one? It's it's all over the shop. But there's something charming about it. And I think you know, the thing about the band. I mean, it's easy to it's easy to pantomime the pantomime, isn't it? But this was about this was this was a group of kids who came from yeah you know, a tough up tough background, tough upbringing. They had nothing to lose. All they had to look forward to was a life on a production line somewhere or maybe getting drafted if if the UK joined the Vietnam War, as far as they were concerned. So they threw everything. They threw the kitchen sink at this. And... And they, I think they were they were going to be successful. They're going to die trying, and, and and they're experimenting. You know, they 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 came. I think they went into the into the studio to record this three months after the debut album had come out. Three four months. Yeah, yeah. So they were they were a band in a hurry to make yeah. it. Well, talk about in a hurry. Paranoid talking about depending on who you believe. It took ten or ten fifteen twenty minutes to write, didn't it? So well, geezer Bill Ward and Ozzy went to the pub and. I only knocked out the riff while they were gone, came back, threw it together and bunged it on a on an eight track. And it wasn't even going to be on the album, was it? It was because they 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 they, they figured they were short of stuff. This track is it, it, this would be a classic of play somebody this and say name the band. Yeah. They, would, yeah. they wouldn't have a clue. Um and then when you told them the answer they just go, "No." It's just so different. It's it it's charming, it's mellow. It's squeezed. It's squeezed between paranoid and Iron Man for Pete's okay. sake. <laughs> so. Tony Iommi did 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 say that he he wasn't sure about the track in the first place, and if he wasn't sure about it fifty years ago, then I'm not feeling guilty about being doubting it now. So, although his guitar playing at the end of it, it does bring it around. Listen, it's listen, it's it's an inoffensive track, but do you know what? On Black Sabbath's second album, I want a lot more offence. To be honest, I want Paranoid, yeah. and I want um, and I want better tracks than Paranoid, and they deliver them. I mean, if, you know, if I can just stand the two standout tracks for me are Hand of Doom and Fairies. Well, obviously War Pigs, but Hand of Doom and Fairies Wear Boots, and they're prime examples of um, you know the simplicity that the band were all about, and and those big nut crunching riffs, which which you know, I mean, the riff on. Um, on Hand of Doom, for example, I mean it's an absolute rectum splitter. It's just a thing of beauty, and and that's that's why they were at their best. I, I completely agree with that. Absolutely do. But Hand of Doom is four different songs 
in a single song. And and it's not the only track on the album that's like that. I mean, you can see the age, can't you? Because, you know, long lumbering tracks, you know, we've just come out of the 60s, so there's nothing unusual about that. And that sense of experimentation, even in a band notionally as primitive as Black Sabbath, you know, they, they weren't afraid to try things. And sometimes it comes off. Hand of Doom is a classic example. Sometimes, as I say, um, you know, Planet Caravan, it just leaves me a bit cold. I mean, I don't know whether any of it had to do with a story I read that they they used to play in Europe and they, and they were expected to do eight hour sets. <laughs> it was it wasn't unknown for Bill to do a forty five minute drum solo. <laughs> so actually, in context, um, these are these are little John Peel pop songs. These are. <laughs> it's not even a, it's not it's not a question really worth asking because you you've got to just see it for what it was. But ask me if it stood the test of time, and no, it hasn't. If I'm honest. Yeah, I, but it, what what I wondered was how much is that down to the production? Because actually, if you look down at the various Black Sabbath songs, so many of them have been covered. Going back to Planet Caravan, I mean, I'd, I'd forgotten it was covered by Pantera on, oh, yeah. you know, um, Faith No More play a cracking version of War Pigs. So, and, and I think I think it's a lot of this is about the production. I mean, hence to say, listen to it as we are now on headphones. Head, it, they constrain it. This this is this is the this is an album that needs to be turned up and and given given some air. And it and it sounds a lot better. Can can we just agree that Ozzy's not in the supergroup though? <laughs> you 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 posed that one mischievously. I know you did because none of these four would be in there, would they? That's the bottom line. Anyway, let's come back to the supergroup. Even after discussing it for however long it is we've been discussing it, I'm not entirely sure what we all think about it. You know, the point of this is is does it go into the Hall of Fame? Well, the scores will determine that in the end. If well, I think, me, I, think I'm, I mean, Mark, you, you, you introduced it perfectly. You almost had confusion in your voice. And um, and that's where this album is. You know, it's it, it's a box of tricks, isn't it? It's, it's something for everyone, a lot for no. It, it's it's enigmatic. It's of an age. That's clear. There's some, there's some really good, thumping, powerful stuff on it. And, in amongst that, there's some, you know, not so interesting stuff. And, you know, that's the album. It's, it's not, it wasn't a work of art. It, it should never be seen as such. There's two or three outstanding tracks on there. And that's kind of where, that's my view of it. So the high point was, for me, was Fairies Wear Boots. I've not seen these guys live. I'm trying to think if I, I think I have seen Ozzy live, but I probably just, just fell asleep or went to the bar. I was I was listening to the the radio I think it might have been Six Music, probably about two or three weeks ago. And Fairies Wear Boots came on. It was requested by a listener. And I thought, wow, this track's absolutely brilliant. First time I'd, yeah, first time I'd, I'd, I'd heard it or first time I'd heard it properly. And the more I've listened to this album is this last week or so, it, it's just absolutely brilliant. It's got just a fantastic groove to it. There seem to be confusions over its meaning. Some talk about there was a, they had a bit of an altercation with some skinheads, uh, but uh, the uh, general consensus seems to be that uh, Ozzy, uh, as uh, he was a lot of the time around them, was completely high on some substance and did actually dream of 
of fairies with boots, uh, which I think I think is a brilliant idea. It's a terrible song title, isn't it? By any measure, that it, it, forget Hall of Fame albums in in your Hall of Fame of worst song titles. That's got to be it. Isn't, isn't it right that he um, Ozzy wrote the lyrics? Is the only song on the album he wrote the lyrics to? I think because Geezer yeah, Butler right. was the lyricist, wasn't he? But I think I was going to move on to this in a moment. But the lyrics are really quite simplistic. Yeah. Other than thematically, there's not there's not a lot of depth to the the words in the song, which is why you can tell it's not Geezer because Geezer Butler, you know, he he wrote the lyrics and everything else, and he was he was very politically driven, and he did like he varied his subject matter. I know drugs were clearly a big player in pretty much everything they wrote, but also you know the, the black arts and well war, and, and he was a political man. He liked and, and he, he tried to infuse quite a lot of that into his lyrics, which is why it's pretty clear pretty quickly that on fairies wear boots that was nothing to do with him <laughs> <laughs> i mean he's a i was reading it i mean he had very quite a strict childhood didn't he very devout catholic parents so so what did he do he painted his walls of his bedroom black and put up signs of the occult everywhere and of course that was another stick to beat sabbath with wasn't it the, the puritans of, of the early 70s you know they i mean critics correct me if i'm wrong i mean the, the these albums didn't go down massively well early early on, and and ev- everything about Black Sabbath would have appalled Middle England straight away. And and you know they were they were a very soft target, weren't they? The story about War Pigs was originally intended to be called War Purgis or War Purgis, yes, which essentially yes. is the panic version of Christmas. Yes. I mean, the, the, the stories appeared to be that they would shrug in their shoulders, and say, w- w- "What's the problem?" <laughs> um, they weren't actually members of the occult they just found it quite fascinating and, and drew parallels with essentially the breakdown of society um so I, they were quite surprised when everyone was pointing at them blaming them for suicides and and whatever else it's a real schoolboy mentality they were young they were just a bunch of kids weren't they i mean a bit older than kids but that's where they were they were, it was a real sort of innocence and naivety about them on it and um you couldn't take any of that seriously the reality is we spent two episodes of this talking quite seriously about some reasonably, not in all cases, but reasonably mature and highly evolved music. And now we're just pantomiming the pantomime. And But that's what they were. I mean, interestingly, if you listen to Master of Reality, which came next, the band's moved on quite a lot. And it continues to move on through the 70s and, and well, right up until... Um, born again really um which is where the whole thing comes to a frankly quite spectacular car crash but but yeah that they they are moving forward there's there's forward momentum with this band if you listen to black sabbath and you listen to master reality you can see the progression so why but this was a a really defining album because it was completely Um, different wasn't it it's it's september 1970 we're coming off the back of that whole flowers in the hair, San Francisco, you know, peace and love man vibe. There's a bit of psychedelia in here. There's a bit of that whole drug culture in here as well. But there isn't another band around at the moment that's making music like this. And however simplistic you think it is, and and it is, and however confusing it might be, and however, however much polarity there is in your emotions from loving some of the stuff to really finding some of it, you know, quite hard to listen to. They are completely unique. Yeah. And yeah was, because because of where because of where we are with them and the fact that this is nineteen seventy and it is their second album, we just we just sit here 
smugly saying it could have been better. But you know what? That almost misses the point, doesn't it? It is what it is. It's rough around the edges. There's so much good stuff in there that, you know, we're listening to Hand of Doom now. It's just priceless. And when they do this, no one did it better. For me, an album of this would have been perfect. But it was never going to be. But but perhaps we'll come back to this when we talk about Deep Purple and um, and Led Zeppelin. But because you hit it on the head as we listen to this chuggy riff in Hand of Doom, that actually the heavy metal riffs in this album, Iron Man, the riffs in Hand of Doom, the riffs in Fairy Work, Fairies wear boots, even even in you know, Electric Funeral, in um, you know Paranoid, obviously. Um, that really simple bass and drums and guitars hitting the, the these these beats at the same time, really simple chords, bang 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 bang. That's where this sits in the establishment of of heavy rock and and heavy metal you know we 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 all love acdc again when we talked about how you know their stuff their stuff too is you know, very simplistic looking at machine head and, and led zep 4 there's a load of other influences coming into those two albums which we'll talk a lot about in a minute whereas this album was just absolutely focused on simple beat to you around the head and I think probably I suppose that's why it's for me is why it's seen as such a a defining album. Like I say, I started off hating it. I've become quite attached to it over the last week. I, it's never going to be my desert island disc. You know, it's ne- it's never going to be the first thing I put on Spotify or in a CD player. But in future, when I hear tracks off this album, it will raise a smile. You know, a, a, a smile of of appreciation. So, highs and lows. Well, um, War Pigs is just a, is an extraordinary <clears throat> opening track. I mean, it still sends shivers down my spine. Um, it's just so so sprawling, so doomy. Is that a word? I don't know. But it's just so relentless. Um, and I, I absolutely adore it. And um, that's hard to match. If it was going to be matched by anything, it'd be Hand of Doom, I just, which is um, glorious. I mean, that's, those are two serious highs. I don't get... Planet Caravan's just curious. The one I don't get is Rat Salad. I don't see any point in it whatsoever. So I'd, I'd put this as the filler on the album rather than Planet Caravan or obviously um, uh, Paranoid. But I mean, they've been, they've, been, you know, they've been touring and promoting the album, the previous album, you know, relentlessly. And then they were they were a live act, weren't they? They played and played and played and played and played. So, so not much opportunity to write songs. A lot of them just did come out of their long jamming sessions improvisation sessions when they were playing live so yeah so that salad i don't see the point the new high for me as i said fairies wear boots and i'd yeah i'd, I'd stick that up there with um with war pigs which i've always loved so, some of these songs on this album with proper production and maybe a better singer could have been even more colossal i don't think there's a lot wrong with ozzy's voice on this I, i'm not a big fan of ozzy you know, into, I'm a big fan of Ozzy. I think he's hilarious, but I'm not a big fan of his voice. But I, I actually think he he pulls this off. I, I would say War Pigs, but I'm not sure I can I can I can give that accolade to a a song that starts off by trying to rhyme masses with masses. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it just shows a lack of effort on as far as I'm concerned. But it is it's a it's an awesome track, War Pigs. But it's not my it's not my highlight. I think I'm kind of torn between. I expected Paranoid to be my highlight, but it's not. I'm torn between Hand of Doom and Fairies Wear Boots, and I think, I think, I think it's Hand of Doom. 
because I think there's so much interesting stuff going on in it. I, I don't mind rat salad. The one I don't get and I don't understand, and I just think it's a bloody mess, is um, Electric Funeral. I don't get that at all. It's um, uh, no, it's a mess. I can't can't be doing with it. I, I'd play Paranoid three times over rather than listen to that. And interestingly, we haven't really spoken about Paranoid, the track, which is no. I was just just thinking, you know, if there's one track on this album that's in the in the pantheon in the in you know metal Valhalla, and um, to us, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a track on an album. There you go. Because it's not the it, it's not the it's the track that everybody knew. Yeah. I mean, God, I had it on a single in 1981, and it had been out 11 years. Mm. But it was the most commercial track on the album, but it wasn't the best track on the album. It's not the best track on the album, not by a long way. Time to move on. So one down, two to go. That was Black Sabbath and Paranoid on our, our Godfathers of Rock special here on Enter Sadmen. Second up is Led Zeppelin IV. Opening album sleeve notes. This massive, massive supergroup who had already done... Um, formed in 1968, released three albums inside 20 months. They weren't a surprise to anyone. Everyone knew Jimmy Page. They were Atlantic Records had chucked millions at them to produce many albums, and this band was not a secret. But what was interesting going into Led Zeppelin IV is that we'd seen three very different sides of Led Zeppelin on their first three albums. And obviously 1971, so I'm six years old when it's come out, and now I'm looking back, I'm thinking, what were Led Zeppelin fans thinking in November 1971 before this album came out, when they'd seen and heard and reveled in Led Zeppelin's one, seen a slight evolution again into two, seen an utter sea change into three. And now they're, did they know that they were about to witness, about to go to the record store and buy one of the greatest rock records of all time, which is what four would go on to become. Because they certainly showed their adaptability and flexibility and their variety on Led Zepp 4. But it's an ext- it's a tour de force studied by this phenomenal track in Stairway to Heaven, which again, what were Zeppelin fans thinking? When I've got a very interesting review, which was written by Rolling Stone magazine when the, when the album came out. The interesting thing about it is that he says... The march of the dinosaurs that broke the ground for their first epic release has apparently vanished, taking along with it splattering electronics of their second effort and the leaden acoustic moves that seem to weigh down their third. And the reviewer goes on to say that there will be a couple of tracks on this album that will be gold-starred hierarchy for years to come. And you're thinking, yeah, that's fair enough. So, you know, Stairway to Heaven and which other one? And it wasn't Stairway to Heaven at all. It was Rock and Roll and When the Levee Breaks. So. There was this kind of sense in November 1971 that no one quite knew that Stairway to Heaven was going to become, what, the biggest rock song of all time from the biggest album of all time. I love When the Levee Breaks and uh, Rock and Roll. But there's something about Stairway to Heaven that kind of has grown into this absolute monster, which Led Zeppelin IV has as well. It's a brilliant album, superb album. When I when I first got this album, I made the... Have you guys ever bought an album and played the wrong side first? Yeah. Not that I'm aware. I did it with Back in Black by ACDC. I, I always thought that um, Back in Black started the album as opposed to started side two. I think it was only when I got it on CD I found that out. So my introduction to Led Zeppelin, the very first time I heard them, was when I put, by mistake, side two on. I went and bought it because everybody, it was it was the record you had to own, wasn't it? 
Led Zeppelin for you, you 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 couldn't be a self-respecting rock fan if you didn't have that in your collection so I went out and I bought it I put side two on so my introduction to Led Zeppelin was Misty Mountain Hop Robert Plant is something of an orophile there's a lot of mountains in this album <laughs> you know would I've, I I often wonder would but I loved it I loved this album from the moment I first played it the wrong way around when I first got this and played it I knew I knew rock and roll and I knew Stairway. I don't know if I knew Black Dog, but the but the first time I put it on properly and turned it up and those opening bars of, of, of Black Dog, it, it, it's just, I think it's a brilliant start to an album. I also think it's quite, I mean, it's interesting that you said you didn't know which way around it. Well, I think they're both very Zeppelin tracks, aren't they? Both Black Dog and Misty Mountain Hop. They, 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 could, they could kick off any Zeppelin album. I don't think they're hugely dissimilar. You know, both extraordinary bits of work. But on an album where everything's just so different, there's just, you know, it, it's just the sheer variety on eight tracks because you've got the kind of, the, there's a ballady feel to, 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 you know, things like the Battle of Evermore and, I mean, Stairway to Heaven and going to California, they're very poetic, aren't they? They're, they're, they're almost withdrawn. And then there's a kind of pseudo blues thing about four sticks. And then, I mean, don't even get me on to when the levee breaks. I could talk all night. It's it's that whole it's that variety about it which is um but it goes back to what I was saying I would imagine any Zeppelin fan in 1971 having seen the evolution of this band through the first three albums would have thought yeah you know what they've cracked it I mean that's 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 spot on that's just about what we wanted I was um 15 when I bought this album I think I th- what struck me most about it actually was 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 the lyricism the the poetry and the kind of the the slightly sort of away with the fairies narrative in a lot of it, and and also the range. I and mean, this is an album with huge range. You know, you go from Stairway, which invented the start of, start as a ballad, finishes a heavy metal song. You know, without Stairway, would you have had Freebird? Would you have had I Believe in You? Would you have had Highway Song? You know, it, mm. it was a it was a template for a lot that came afterwards, and, and yeah, everyone talks about Page and Plant, but for me, this this band was driven by Bonham. He absolutely drove this band forward. Yeah, I agree. Someone who attempt has attempted to play the drums uh, through his life, John Bonham's uh, uh, playing is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean it. Well, we talked quite a bit about Neil Peart, didn't we, last podcast and uh, and Rush. I mean, they've got their parallels. They're, they're both hugely influenced by jazz and uh, and also funk. So again, Bonham massively influenced by by Buddy Rich, uh, for example. For for me as a drummer, Neil, you can tell Neil Peart's stuff's complicated. With John Bonham, you think his stuff is easy until you try to start playing it in terms of what he's laying on top of another and the, what his limbs happen to be doing in relation to, to one another. You know, we'll, we'll have another discussion about Ian Pace because he's another fantastic drummer when we, we get on to, to Deep Purple in a bit. Bonham's drumming was just this absolute rock, then everything else uh, laid on. But then, at the same time, I mean, one of the big things was he would he would start to follow what Jimmy Page was doing. Um, so the drums often, often sinking with the guitar, sometimes with the bass. Brilliant drummer. A Led Zeppelin, a folk rock band. Well, they've never they've never shied away from that element. I mean, are they post psychedelia? I mean, you can stick any number of. Brands. I mean, you know, we're about to um, 
about to enjoy um, uh, the Battle of Evermore, which is... I mean, isn't it written on the mandolin or something? I mean, it's about as folky as it gets, isn't it? I'm sure I read that Page and Plant wrote this in about 15 minutes or something when Page was playing around with John Paul Jones's mandolin at Headley Grange while they were recording the album. I wouldn't put them in a folk rock, give them a folk rock label. The big thing about them was they had so many influences. So from rock, from folk, jazz, blues, I think that's the thing. And I think we'll have a similar conversation. We go on to Deep Purple around actually the range of of musical uh, styles that they they brought into, into the music. They hoovered up ideas and information and inspiration. And, and that's, that's what we're hearing on on this album. But to be so gigantic that you can produce blistering rock, I mean, some of the hardest rock around at the time, and then come down to this, you know, in the same breath, with any number of different things in between, any number of layers and levels and, and different things they try and pull off. I mean, super group, it's, it's an overused phrase. I mean, they were astonishingly talented. This is... Um, this is an example for my, for my compilation album of uh, music to chill to in a hammock. This is the only album that produces two songs, by the way, which is this one, Battle Evermore and When the Levee Breaks, because no one chills quite like Led Zeppelin when they want to. It's, this is just be- I mean, I, I could just fall asleep to this. I promise you I won't, but I could do. And presumably Planet Caravan is on that hammock list now as well. <laughs> I mean, It'll it's be Surely the Battle of Evermore to Led Zeppelin Four is like Planet Caravan to Paranoid, isn't it? Chalk and cheese, my friend. Cheese and chalk. But that's another dimension of Zeppelin, isn't it? That they groove. Yeah, they knew how to lay down a groove, this band. Yeah, on every album, every album you listen to, you know, whether it's Babe, I'm going to quit you um, in... uh, on Zeppelin one or it's living, loving made or, or a whole lot of love or uh, ramble on, on two, or it's Bronnie or stomp on three, or it's, you know, rock and roll. When the levy, I mean, when the levy breaks, it's got a huge groove to it, hasn't it? Or it's in the evening in physical graffiti, cashmere. I don't know. They knew how to move you. And on a slightly different subject, how old were you when you bought this album? I was in my twenties. Uh, I was at I was at university, so eighteen. Because there's a there's a, a, a brilliant story around the Battle of Evermore. Have you heard it about Sandy Denny, who's the backing vocalist? And it's apocryphal. It's there's no truth in this at all. But it's a really good story. So the story was going round when I bought this that Sandy Denny, who died prematurely, seventy five or seventy six, um, had a very troubled life. The story was that she died after leaving the studio having recorded this song, right? And that on the night, on the anniversary of her death, if you happen to be playing this song, the record screams. Which is just, it's a great story. It's that's one of those kind of urban myth things that, but I, but, you know, being 15 and impressionable, I played it every night thinking, I'm going to find out. <laughs> Yeah, it, it resonates of an age, doesn't it? A certain time. Where, when um, I was trying to think in, in, in what other songs, tracks, have Led Zeppelin used another vocalist, Never. or even a female vocalist? Never. 
It's the only time. And and Robert Plant felt that he needed a different voice to help tell the story. So in this, he he's the narrator, uh, and Sandy Denny, I think I'm right in saying, is the town crier, yeah. And the story. So he felt he needed another voice, and they'd they'd um, they played the uh, some obscure. I mean, it probably wasn't obscure in 1970, 71, but they played some obscure festival down in the West Country, Bath Folk Festival or something. The I think Fairport Convention, which Sandy Denny was a singer with, um, had been headlining. So they, they, and they'd done, I think that wasn't the only show they'd done with Fairport Convention. And so Plants and Sandy Denny knew each other quite well. So when they were looking for somebody to, to duet with Plant on Battle of Evermore, I suppose it was a natural, natural call to make, but she's got a beautiful voice. So as we, as we kind of finish with the Battle of Evermore, Stairway comes on into our ears. And <laughs> I'm no singer, just as, Steve, you're no guitarist and, Rich, you're a would-be drummer, but I'm no singer. But I, this is the only song that I knew the lyrics to that I could use as a lullaby to sing my son to sleep when he was a baby. But I had to stop it when there's a bustle in your hedgerow because I kept waking him up. Yeah, I used Top Jimmy by Van Halen. Worked for me every time. But <laughs> I always find it, um, I always find the juxtaposition, this is quite anal, but I always find the juxtaposition of the two tracks quite odd. You always think that Battle of Evermore should be on one side and this should be on the other. There you go. Interesting point. Well, I was having a conversation with, with Richard earlier in the week where we were talking about it became the norm, didn't it, Over the, as the years went on, that the ballad would end the album. Mm. I Believe in You by Y&T, for example. And, and this, you know, if you knew that if you wanted a hot, rocking you know, experience, you stopped, you stopped the album at, after track nine, because track ten would be a ballad. But they've ended side one on a ballad, which it, for, for me... Man, for me, made sense because obviously it was the last song the first time I played this album. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the convention anyway, wasn't it? That ballads ended albums. I don't know. I don't know back then. I'd love to know how they came up with the um, the track order. It's incredibly well balanced. It depends what mood you're in. I mean, when I was listening to Stairway again, and we listen to it right now, it's one of those tracks, isn't it? That has, has it has it been damaged by its popularity and its godlike status the fact that it's played so often uh, what i tried to do so listen to this this last week is try to forget all that and almost just try to listen to this again for the first time and it's just absolutely mind-blowing it, it really is like no other track i think you're right though it has been damaged through overplay not when we listen to it in the way we have over the last week because we've been listening to it in a completely different way and it's worth saying this I think we've all been listening to this, trying to listen to these albums as though we were listening to them for the first time again. And, and that wasn't something we agreed in advance. I think that's just the way, the natural way that we've done it. But I think I have been bored by this song over the years sometimes because yeah, certainly in the, the, the early 80s, I heard this an awful lot. It was a bit like hi-ho silver lining. <laughs> yeah, where at the end of the disco, you just go, oh, please, not again, you know? Um, so I think you're right, Rich. I think it has been damaged by being overplayed and and it is a victim of its own success in all sorts of ways. And I think it benefits from some distance because it is. It's a phenomenal song. It's a ph it's phenomenally structured. It's beautifully delivered. The playing on it is completely balanced. Lyrically, it is 
poetic and strange, which an awful lot of Zeppelin was. That was a wonderful song. It, there's always there's always something. I mean, it wasn't written by chance, was there? Jimmy Page said he'd, he'd planned it about 18 months ahead, and he said he never gave too much away. He was going to do this epic song, and and he was the first to admit that um, that the band didn't initially get it and thought it would be quite hard, and um, you know, to pull off live and, and just play generally. I think John Bonham. It's that you mentioned it, Rich. That chemistry between Page and Bonham, and, and they, they were just like you know brothers. I mean, Bonham knew. It worked perfectly between the two of them, but there was this lovely quote from um, from Robert Plant because obviously a lot of people have kind of, you know, sneered at the lyrics and that sort of post mystical folksy nonsense that you know it's easy to have cheap shots at it. And he said, "This is from about twenty years ago." He said, "If you absolutely hated Stairway to Heaven, nobody can blame you for that because it was so pompous." Um, I struggle with some of the lyrics from particular periods of time. Maybe I was still trying to work out what I was talking about. Every other fucker is. Mr. Robert Plant, ladies and gentlemen. Well, he, he, he says about Battle of Evermore, doesn't he, that the lyrics are naive, but that he, he credits Sandy Denny, actually, with carrying that song through and, the, and the, 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 the composition, Jimmy Page's composition. And uh, what I like about Robert Plant is, you know, he looks back and he sees a 23-year-old making one of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time, as a 23-year-old, with all of the flaws and all of the the warts and all of the you know insecurities that being 23 brings, and and he's utterly honest about it. Uh, and it, and I think that's the thing about this album is it's an utterly it's pretentious in all sorts of ways, you know, very pretentious in all sorts of ways. But it's an honest album. It's, it, it clearly it comes from the heart, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Which I think, well, and, and which I think all. All three of these albums we're we're discussing here do uh, in different ways. Three bunches of blokes doing the best they can. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Black Sabbath, it was their second album. This is Zeppelin's fourth. Machine Head was Purple's sixth. And and there is a, a, a we'll come on to this in due course. There is a maturity to Deep Purple, Machine Head, that is absent by degrees from this album mm. from four. And from Paranoid, certainly from Paranoid. You know, there's a there's a lot of maturity in Zeppelin Four, but there's an awful lot of naivety. Whereas I, I I think Machine Head is a more mature album, marginally than this one. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they Led Zeppelin were massively in their stride by this album. Yeah, and they also they also of course they had a they felt they had a point to prove as well because didn't they not give it a title almost out of disdain for everyone who had slagged off Led Zeppelin Three. They just thought, right, we'll show them. Um, we're not bothered giving it a, a, a name. Don't talk to us like that. You know, we're we're Led Zeppelin. Don't, don't how you how dare you denigrate one of our pieces of work? We'll, we'll give you whatever we want next time. And if it doesn't have a name, it doesn't have a name. You know, up yours basically. But you're only the, the, the only response you can give is through the music. And um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a giant of an album, isn't it? Yeah, Misty Mountain Hop is up is up there um, as. Um... One of my highlights. I absolutely love it. You know, it's more upbeat. I love the lyrics. It's a song that really makes me happy. I think, though, that side two is weaker than side one overall. Um, um, oof, yeah, I, I think it depends what mood you're in. I mean, I, we listen to Four Sticks now. I, for me, this is the weaker of the four tracks on, on side two. 
I no, I, th- I think it holds its own again, Sidewalk. Yeah, you're comparing like with like, as far as I can see, and you are right, as said with music, it depends what mood you're in, but um, cigarette paper between the two of them. We're listening to Going to California now. Again, I guess, yeah, another folk-inspired song. Yeah, Allegedly. it's beautiful. It's just, it's so, it's so wistful and far away. And, you know, I mean, it's at a time when, you know, flowers in your hair and going to California, there was something about it, wasn't there? But it still, it still seems very British. And um, Paige's playing is, is just beautiful. And, and you know, the, the sort of, the, the, the pain in, in Plant's voice, it, wonderful stuff. Do we know how how this album was recorded? Because you know, I'd be quite disappointed if this wasn't the two of them sitting on stools. You know, it, it, I can't believe this intimacy could be achieved without two blokes, you know, in 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 the room playing, singing together. From what I've heard, it obviously re- recorded at Headley Grange. Everything was, but with no overdubs at all, and it kind of just a thing they did together. And yes, as 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 close as you can get to two guys playing their instruments together and just clicking. Um, but I guess nothing's ever quite that simple with Led Zeppelin. I mean, literally it was, um, it started out as a song about Californian earthquakes. Plant said, again, that, that this song might be a bit embarrassing at times lyrically, but it did sum up a period of my life when I was 22. <laughs> I think like, <laughs> you, know, you were 22. I think we'll forgive him that. Should we come on to high lights and not so high lights? I mean, if there's if there's one song, Steve, can you pick one song out on this album? You can only take one for a desert island. Yeah, it's 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 very it's very rare that a classic album saves its best till last. But this is one of them, and we're now listening to when the levee breaks. And it, it's not only will I take it to a desert island, I'll, I'll take it to my grave. It's um, there's there's no better farewell to an album than this. It's it's a triumph. It's majestic, absolutely majestic. It's a beautiful reworking of, of an old song. There's no secret to it. The, the way it just drifts and drifts and keeps on going and keeps coming back, and uh, it's, just, it's just a brilliant song. Um, and there's no point asking me for a weak spot because there isn't one. I think, so with my listening first ears on, oh, crumbs. It'd be between Misty Mountain Up and Stairway, I think. One, one song on this album for the rest of my life. Uh, I'd feel it would be a crime not to take Stairway. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Mark? Did you did you have the low light? I think for me, it's a not-so-highlight, probably four sticks. Yeah, for, for me, the, the not-so-highlight would be four sticks or going to California, and I think I would probably plump for four sticks in the end. Battle of Evermore for me it, it's it's a measure of the album isn't it where you just go oh no don't make me choose but i think it would be battle of evermore because because it is so beautiful and it is so haunting and yes lyrically it's up its ass and but you know there is something about it there's something about sandy denny's vocals on that something about the imagery in it oh, i love it i love that song so yeah but but frankly if i could grab the whole album and take it with me i'd do that so that's led zeppelin's classic fourth album led zeppelin four four symbols zozo whichever whatever you want to call it 1971 an absolutely towering powerhouse of an album that 
quite rightly sits in the pantheon of influential albums that have helped define a genre over 50 years. But we've had Black Sabbath, we've had Led Zeppelin. There's one other band that can lay claim to being the godfathers of rock, and that is Messrs. Pace, Glover, Blackmore, Lord, and Gillen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Deep Purple Machine Head. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so recorded in um, the end of 1971, uh, we all know some of the events of, of its recording because it was captured in one of the songs. They ended up recording it in um, in a, an empty hotel, didn't they? On the on the I think it's the outskirts of Montreux, is that right? In the, in the Grand Hotel. I mean, it's the the, the Grand is mentioned in in Smoke on the Water, and it, I, I think it that has has something to do with in particular how the album sounds they had this whole, whole empty hotel to themselves they thought i think they were just going to shack up in a room or two uh, to set things up uh, for the recording you know using the they were using the rolling stones mobile recording studio I think, weren't they? but then they realized that actually things sounded better if they tried different spaces and different rooms so for the drum sound, they found that it was uh, they they recorded it they recorded Ian Pace in a corridor, <laughs> and his, uh, his his drum kit is, is there's pictures of his drum kit sandwiched between these two narrow walls. So yeah, some sort of hall or corridor within the hotel, which is one reason why the drums on this album sound so so good. What I love about this album is Deep Purple set out their store right at the start there is absolutely no confusion they put the foot on the throttle and they go you know you're in for a ride now you know we've got highway highway star on now it's a oh it's just an awesome awesome album it is very true actually they are all playing full pelt from the from the, from the start and the first First vocal you hear from Ian, Green, Ian Gillen is a, is a blood-curdling scream. <laughs> I'm, I'm right in thinking that this is their sixth album, Mark. Is that what you said? Because they had a lot to live up to, given the success of In Rock and Fireball. And um, I know Richie Blackmore apparently wasn't best pleased with Fireball as a product. I don't know why. It's a great album. But um, he said it had been overworked or something. So they knocked this thing out in three weeks, apparently. I mean, we keep going back to all these stories of bands back in the day you could do albums in next to no time and there's another example but you know if you think it's going to be rushed or rough it's none of the none of the above is it it's 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 just a, it's just a monument the way it just kicks you in the nuts from the off but then beyond that it's just got everything in it there's something in this album for everyone i mean the the variety in it is astonishing I and mean, we all know about richie blackmore the guitarist and that sort of symbiosis with john lord on keyboards it's just one of the great relationships in rock, isn't it? It's brilliant. Throw in, um, you mentioned Ian Pace earlier, um, Rich, and probably under underrated. And he's more than a timekeeper, isn't he? I mean, I know he's not, um, he's not as as yeah. brilliant as Neil Peart say, but he's, well, um, you know, he, he's definitely underrated. And yeah, you know, Roger Glover as a bass player, they even given him, they even give him a solo. So, but then all bass players tended to get solos back in the day, didn't they? And then of course you've got Ian Gillen, who is, um, well, I mean, the, the range of his voice is just 
well, it's just nut snapping. It, it's just a, one of my great all time great singers. He's just, just got a brilliant voice. So just seven tracks, just seven bloody tracks on this album, and there's something in there for everyone. It's it's astonishing. In terms of the them as musicians, I mean, they're all I mean highly highly gifted. Yeah, on listening to this, I mean. Yeah, Richard Blackmore, brilliant guitarist. Yeah, Ian Pace, totally underrated drummer. His his technique, his speed, his groove again, big parallels with 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 Bonham. John Lord actually essentially on the one instrument plays keyboards, bass, guitar, and percussion. He's playing the bass line. We know essentially you have to listen hard and suddenly realise actually that's an al- that's an organ being played, obviously through a Marshall stack, but it's an organ being played rather than a guitar. And then, and then the other times where he's sort of he, you know, he, heavily distorted sort of percussive uh, element. I, I think he made Deep Purple different and special. I'd agree with that. But for me, the underrated, the unsung hero of certainly this album, but Deep Purple generally is Roger Glover. Go on, tell us why you think that. Because all of those upbeats, they're all on the bass. And the same was true when Deep Purple split up and Blackmore and Glover went off to form Rainbow. Glover played the same role in Rainbow. He was he was the baseline underpinned everything that Rainbow did when when they were at their best. And I think the same is true on Machine Head. I think I think Roger Glover is is an, an astonishing musician. John Lord is phenomenal, and he, and he gives them as you say that distinctive sound. You know, he 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 could get a tune out of a Joanna, couldn't he? John Lord, classically trained as well as I mean, Deep Purple, as well as sort of folk and rhythm and blues. Classical. Richie Blackmore makes comments that he's, you know, certain certain riffs on this album, he's ripped off Beethoven and turned it upside down a bit. John Lord yeah, has played classical organ and, and basically he's, he's, he admitted had sort of Baroque uh, influences uh, in it. Their backgrounds, their influences um, are, are so, so broad. Yeah, they're a very clever band. There's an awful lot of influences. I mean, they're all brought up differently in terms of music. And as you said, there's an awful lot of classical stuff in there, which they refer to, but, you know, loads of blues, loads of psychedelia, and, you know, just some solid, no-nonsense rock and roll. And it's, um, you know, that's what makes the, the, the album so alluring, isn't it? It's, um, it's, it's, the, it's the variety that runs through it. And we listen to Maybe I'm a Leo now, and, and your point about the, the upbeats. I mean, Roger Glover wrote the riff to this. And the fact that it, it, it starts and accents on on those upbeats uh, give, gives it's what that's what gives this entire song a lift and a bounce. I think as well that where this album benefits and where it where it trumps the two that we've talked about already is that they have a vocalist whose voice is an instrument. I don't think Plants is in the same way, but Ian Gillan can make his voice do things that are crazy, crazy good. Yeah, yeah, and I know how much Steve, uh, you are our resident live album hater. But if you listen to Made in Japan, you listen to that duel between Blackmore and Gillan on is it Child in Time? I think it is. I think so. It's astonishing. You know, Gillan matches Blackmore's notes, note for note, no matter where it is in the range. You know, for me, we talked to you at the beginning about you know who's in the supergroup. The, the vocalist in my supergroup is Ian Gillan. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, mine too. The, the the combination of the the the, the range, but uh, but the power. I mean, my goodness, he could belt it out. But then, but then he had he, he didn't have to all the time, and so that, the the control there as well. 
Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? They, repl- they, re- they replaced him with, you know, one of the great rock singers of all time. But um, they were never the same band again, were they, when Coverdale replaced Gillen? No. No, I... Or as choose your adjectives. I don't know. I just think Gillen was cooler. But this is where, you know, I said when we were talking about Led Zeppelin 4, I said Deep Purple had a more mature sound on Machine Head than, than I think Zeppelin did on Zeppelin 4. I think that a lot of that is down to Gillen. You know, he was, uh, I, I think, 23 as well when he recorded this. But he sounds like a singer who's been around the block a few times. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing about Gillen is there is nothing he can't sing as well. You, you feel like you could put anything in front of him at this age, at this, you know, I'm not talking about now, but at this point, 1970, 71, 72, 73, in fact, all the way down through Gillen, actually, through through his own band, you think you could write anything for him and he can sing it. Well, he, he had no right to still be singing in the in the 90s, did he? I mean, he was probably singing later than that, but, um, you know, the, the, the damage he must have done to his voice, because, I mean, he's, he's strained every, every sinew of it, isn't he? It's... Um, he never left anything out there, as they say in football parlance. So we'll listen to pictures of home, which has the uh, aforementioned bass solo. No, I'm agree. I, I think it, <laughs> I don't know. I, I imagined I was listening to this as I was listening to this that um, yeah, Roger said, "Oh, come on! I mean, John always gets to do one in most songs, and of course, Richie always gets his. Can't I have a go?" What is it about bass solos that they're just not very interesting? Do the bands look out? At the audience, does Richie turn to Roger at some point and go, the audience looks really thirsty, Rog, can you just kind of <laughs> do 15 minutes, let them go for a drink? Yeah. It the- must be an insecurity thing. A, a bass player must look at look at the guitarist with fawning eyes and, and, and the keyboard player and think, Oh, if only my if only my instrument was yours, but um please please let me show it off. Let me show what it can do. And uh, it's just completely unsatisfying when it when they do. But that was, of course, back in the day when, you know, every, you know, we went to gigs in the you know early 80s. I mean, you know, every instrument got showcased, didn't it? So can we talk about um, this song? Because it's one of my favourites. And do you know why it's one of my favourites? Because it's so deep purple. So we're, we've got, we're, we're listening to it now, never before. And it, the verses are all deep purple. You've got the keyboards. You've got Gillen going for it. You've got the bass line in there. You've got Richie going. You, the drums are kind of front and centre. And then suddenly it goes Chaz and Dave. <laughs> and I love it. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the other thing, Chaz and Dave. The other thing that's funny about this, you, you, you can, I, don't, I don't think you can restart the song in our, in our ears, but the drum fill that starts the song sounds ever so slightly like the Pina Colada song. But then this is the Beatles. Yeah. Isn't it? We said they were talented. You were right, Steve, when you said, I think it was you, or maybe it was you, Rich. You said that the influences are so diverse, so wide, so varied through this album. Mm. And and then they're back into some sort of, you know, 1970s Elkie Brooks thing going on now. Yeah, I, I love this song. It's just... It, it, it's it's confusing, but unlike Black Sabbath, in a good way. It's true. It's true about the the number of influences. I mean, because we'll come on to we'll come on to Lazy in a minute. And um, I was playing that to my son earlier because he'd never heard it before, and and he immediately hit back with two songs from John Mayall's Blues Breakers that were so similar in so many ways. And um, you know, I shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, you know, why wouldn't Blackmore 
like what Clapton did, and there's a blues feel to a lot of, you know, there's a very bluesy track, Lazy, obviously. And it's just one of, you know, there are no originals in music. You know, nothing's ever been original, and everyone's inspired by other people. And it was interesting that you could hear so clearly, you know, John Mayall in, in, in what Richie was doing um, on Lazy. Just yet another example, an illustration of, um, of, the, of the inspiration that, uh, that goes into making an album. Which, which is interesting when you bear in mind that, I mean, uh, from what I've read, and I've obviously read much, Richie Blackmore's reputation gives the impression that he's a bit of a lovey, a bit precious, but you would, you would never, but he's just, he's just one fifth of a great band to my ears. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing about him that says, you know, this is my band. Whereas Whitesnake, of course, they just felt like Coverdale's plaything, didn't they, a little bit? Because he was a huge personality. Blackmore isn't dominating at all here, and and again, what's what's fantastic about this is is that is the interplay between them, be it guitar and drums, or guitar and keyboards, or keyboards and bass, or, or keyboards and vocals. And vocals. It it sounds like they had a hell of a lot of fun recording this. Uh, there's a an anniversary edition of this album that's got alternative takes on it. Uh, where some of the recordings are extended just to, just in terms of them, you know, counting in the song and, and uh, the start of the song would, would be, a pace would start, would actually be kicking out a rhythm before the other instruments come in, but that, that, that bit was cut off of the, 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 the final mix. And just from those those extra little bits at, on, at the start and the end, I mean, it really looked like they, I mean, they were jamming and they were having fun and the alternate takes that so much, the, I think, were... Better than the, the one, the versions that were on the album. Others not quite as good. So there's obviously um, some jamming and some improvisation going on um, as, as they were recording these tracks. And yeah, it's it's great. I, I think it's a, a you know, reflection. We, we chose these three albums. We knew they came out in sort of consecutive years. Perhaps it's a bit. We've been a bit unfair on Black Sabbath um, in terms of should should we have been comparing Paranoid to. Um, in rock and Led Zepp, what two or three, Led Zepp two, I guess. Uh, but well, look, we've we've done it how we've we've done it. But as you as you say, Mark, the, the this this is this is an album of a of a band completely in its groove. They're, they're five albums in, completely confident. They they know each other. They know what each other can do. And Zeppelin were in in a very similar place. To be fair, there's space in this album, isn't there? It, it, there there's room for it to breathe. Yeah. Um, no, I think that I, so. I think I think Led Zeppelin was still trying things on on four. This album is uh, a, with a bunch of guys so at ease with themselves and just doing it. That's what there is. Such there is a. I mean, we're listening to Lazy now because uh, th- th- this is this. There is a swagger, an absolute swagger about this track, and a swagger about this album. This is just like a, a jam, this is just like a jam session, isn't it? They, they could they could play this for half an hour, and and you wouldn't tire of it. They just take it to somewhere different, and they they all do it together. Exactly that, exactly that. And and when you uh, and acknowledging once again, Steve, that you hate live. <laughs> if you listen to Made in Japan, which is the tour, is the Machine Head tour. They they clearly were having the time of their lives. The, the music was just flowing. I, I think this, this is, uh, I mean, Lazy's just finished. And it, it's kind of, it's mind-blowingly good, isn't it? It is mind-blowingly good. Uh, and even the sort of slight curio at the end in space trucking, 
even that is just good fun, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, for for me, if you want, if you want the band that started that that really laid the foundation for hard rock and heavy metal, I think, I think it's Deep Purple. I really do. It's 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 a it's a good it's a it's a really good way to end an album because it's a very difficult album to end after Lazy. So the way they've done it is just just something different again, you know, just just to sh- again show their versatility, just to add something else. Um, and it's it, Space Truck is a great track, great track. The first time I heard it, I was just blown away by what, what is this? And again, guitar and sorry, bass and organ. A song starts with syncopated bass and organ. What? Oh, and then some songs come in. Uh, so, yeah, brilliant. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. Okay, highs and lows. Steve? Um, high for me is Pictures of Home. There's too many highlights of the track. I love the way it just, um, even at the end, when you think it's about to finish and then they sort of crack on again for for one final blast i love it if there's a week i'm with you i'm not um never before that'd be about as weak as it gets rich before i do let's talk about i don't we haven't talked about smoke and water have we it too has suffered from overexposure the other thing it's suffered from everybody thinks because some kid can go it's a simple song it isn't yes there's that very simple main riff uh, that starts it everything else about the song is far from simple the changes in the groove the speed of the fills the timing between the players but again it's because of that riff and because it's been played so so much so coming on to your question about weak point if i were to drop a song now i might drop smoke on the water because i've heard it too many blooming times um well again there's not a weak song on the album Probably the one I, that might get a slightly lower score from me, maybe never before. I would just, just listen to Blackmore's guitar solo or Smoke of the Water. It is such a brilliant song, but it's just been it's just been way, way overplayed. More probably more so than than Stairway to Heaven, and it's suffered for it. Highlight for me, as I've already said, in, in, I think in in listening to this album, this album properly, is Lazy. Um, I, I messaged you both that it blown my mind. Uh, when I, you know, because it, it's what's been fan, what's fantastic about what we're doing here is I sit somewhere quiet and I just listen to these things and they have my total concentration. And uh, yeah, that that um, was was mind blowing. Mark, where do you stand? So my low light by a, a reasonable distance it, on the basis that there aren't any bad tracks on this album. But if I had to drop one from the album, it would be maybe I'm a Leo. I, I love. Never before, by the way. I wasn't joking. I, I, I absolutely love it. It makes me smile, <laughs> and I think that's a, a that's a massive thing. And Rich, I, I completely get the thing about lazy. It is a mind blowingly brilliant masterclass in virtuosity. Uh, just astonishing track. But if I am listening to this for the very first time. I have to say smoke on the water. <laughs> because, because if you were there at the beginning and you put aside all of the stuff that you know about it, and this for me, this track 
smoke on the water is where heavy metal or hard rock starts. Mm. That's really interesting because t- tonight we've talked about two of the, the most titanic and therefore inevitably overplayed riffs in modern rock history in Paranoid, which of course preceded Smoke in the Water and uh, and Smoke on the Water. And yeah, it's the latter and not the former that, that still gets our affection and that, 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 that we still enjoy so much. And it seems to have endured so much more than Paranoid. Yet they're both... They're both what they are. They're both enormously accessible riffs. They're both enormously accessible tracks. But you know, one seems to have um, one seems to please us more than the other. Do you know what I think? That comes down. I think it is about simplicity because Paranoid is really a riff. It is all about the riff. It, it, that that's what that song is. You could take out Ozzy's vocals. You could take out Geezer's bass. You could t- you could take out. Bill Ward's drums, and I would still listen to that track and love it, absolutely. And and you could play it for four days, can, non-stop, you know, just never stop it, and I'd love it. Smoke on the Water is an, is an anthem. It's layered and sophisticated, and it tells a story, and it benefits from the fact that it's composed with just some of the greatest, <laughs> some of the greatest musicians that the world has ever seen. No matter how much I love Lazy, and I did, and, and I hadn't really appreciated it fully before I listened to this for the listen to it for the podcast. And no matter how much I adore Highway Star, and I do, if it's 1972 and I've just bought Machine Head and Smoke on the Water comes on, I'm going, oh my fucking god! <laughs> so it has to it has to be that for me. Once again, encourage anyone that's listening to this to find themselves in a find themselves a quiet place and honestly give give any of these albums your full concentration. Poor old Paranoid has, has, has uh, was up against two absolute Goliaths in our eyes, but nevertheless, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. Although we've we've taken the piss out of it in this episode, it's come from a place of real affection for it. Uh, and I think the evidence of that is, if I could have, after the first listen of it, I wouldn't have bothered going back to it. I'm glad I did, mm. because there are some real standout moments on that album. You just have to you have to give yourself to it and, and listen to it and appreciate it for what it was and what it represented at the time. And And when you do that, you see the brilliance of that album. But it's in some fairly serious company. It hasn't aged as well as, it, as its competitors here. Uh, but I'm, I suppose I'm trying to think of, re, of just reasons why the production, the, the writing. Machine Head hasn't aged badly, but Led Zepp 4 is timeless. Are, 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 yeah, are we looking at the wrong thing? Is it, is it not so much the, the ageing of the albums, but the ageing of us? Are we expecting more musicality the older we get? We'd have banged our head with the best of them to simple stuff 30 40 years ago you know black paranoid is what it is was what it was i just think we're more sophisticated and therefore we like the musicality that purple and zeppelin bring to the table well you say that steve but i if, uh, 1981 which is or 80 which is when i no, 1979 really is when i started really getting into this stuff i wanted noise yeah you know, I, I, I was ready for Black Sabbath yeah. uh, and and an album that we will get to at some point, which I would 
as things stand right here, right now, would put in my top 10. And the day of the week, Heaven and Hell is one of my favorite albums of all time. So I was ready to, I was ready to be rocked, yeah, when I was 14, 15. I think this album had dated even then. Mm. And, and I think the reason, actually, that it doesn't stand the test of time, to go to your point, Richard, is I think it's just, it's childlike. Actually, there's a childlike simplicity to it. The lyrics are childishly simple. That's not to say that, that they don't have merit, but there's they're not. <laughs> Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin are nine, I think, broadly speaking, privately educated, very academically gifted, privileged young men. Black Sabbath are four working class lads who've had to literally claw their way to success without the benefit of an education, or at least a decent education, without any sense of financial security or safety, without any sense of social acceptance. And they have, that, you know, they, they've, they've, they've done it in true Brummy style. I, you know, I'll take my hat off to them. Yeah. You know, that, I wanted to bring up that, that class element yeah. of it. I wanted to bring it up, but I forgot to bring it up because it's, um, that's a very valid point. I mean, they'll talk about, you know, from the wrong side of the street. And, you know, we'll credit to them for that. And and lyrically, they, they don't... Well, there you have it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't stand a chance because they don't they don't have those references to draw on. No. You know, they're, they're, in the way that Ian Gillan does and, and Robert Plant does. You know, if you've been to whatever it is, I mean, the equivalent of Eton, then, you you, you know, you, you've been exposed to more influence literal you know literature you've been exposed to more much more highbrow culture you know much more classical references you've got so much more depth academically to draw on if you're Ozzy Osbourne and Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler and Bill Ward and you've grown up in you know in the black country you know, in the heart of industrial Birmingham which at the time looked like a bloody war zone and all you've got to look forward to is you know working on the production line at Cowley, mm. you're not going to be in the same ballpark, mm. are you? No. So in some ways, Paranoid is a greater accomplishment than Machine Head or Led Zeppelin Four. There you go. I think the production really, really lets it down. I, th- I think actually, if um, if they had had a different and a better producer. Imagine what that could have sounded like if they were supported by a, a producer and an engineer, and the kind of uh, and the, the you know the, the quality of, uh, of a recording equipment in a studio, the likes that uh, Led Zepp and, and Deep Purple had. It, it, it's almost stuck in. I know, obviously, it was the earlier of, of earliest of these albums, but but it. I don't know. It, it it was stuck in cheap '60s production. Yeah. And as I said, I, it, it, it's why you have to put it through a decent stereo and turn it up. Well, you know, I, I don't know how long Rush spent at Le Studio in Quebec. I do know that Black Sabbath, the record company, paid for three weeks in Regent Studio in London, and come what may, they had to have this album done mm. and shipped within three weeks. Yeah, you know, it hasn't stood the test of time, but that's not down to the musicianship or the endeavour. That's down to that's down to where they came from, 
and the fact that they weren't signed to Atlantic Records or EMI. They were signed to, I think at the time, a small, relatively small independent label, which had a limited budget. When you when you kind of consider all of those things and you think that was still a number one album in the UK, that's a hell of an achievement. Mm. Yes, yeah. So we will be back next week with the scores and we will let you know where these three albums sit in the Hall of Fame. As things stand, it will take something significant, I think, to unseat, dethrone moving pictures. But we shall see. So there you have it. That is episode three of the Enter Sad Men podcast, Done and Dusted. Machine Head, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath's Paranoid, and the classic Led Zeppelin for uh, rated, reviewed, and will be ranked. Next week, we will be talking about Calling Cards, the debut albums that made an impact. Uh, we've yet to choose them. We haven't even talked about what they're going to be. But I can promise you one thing. The discussion will be interesting and the albums will be amazing. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.